Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Michael Osterholm, renowned infectious disease expert and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Author of the 2017 book, The Deadliest Enemy, Our War with Killer Germs, Dr. Osterholm is among a team advising President Biden's transition on COVID-19 strategies. He warns that we're in the eye of the hurricane, the pandemic is far from over, and more infectious variants are driving the next surge in the pandemic. Lori Robertson also checks in, managing editor of factcheck.org, looks at misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter, wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also hear us by asking Alexa to play the program. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Michael Osterholm here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, a renowned epidemiologist. Dr. Osterholm recently served on President Biden's Transition Committee on COVID-19. Dr. Osterholm has also served as Interim CDC Director and Advisor to Homeland Security and the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Osterholm is a member of the National Academy of Medicine. He's the author of more than 300 publications, including the 2017 book, The Deadliest Enemy, Our War with Killer Germs, in which he outlined the exact scenario we are in with COVID-19. Dr. Osterholm, we wanna thank you and welcome you back to Conversations on Healthcare. Well, thank you for having me back. That's great. You know, I wanted to start off with asking you to give our audience uh, sort of a big picture view What's, first of all, positive about uh, what we're doing in our battle with the pandemic and what keeps you up at night? Well, uh, first of all, I think you have to start out by saying it's a tale of two cities right now. Uh, One tale is that of the vaccines and the rollout of the vaccines here in the United States. Uh, It has been a remarkable accomplishment to date by the uh, administration in terms of helping the private sector companies actually get vaccine, get it out to the state and local areas, and trying to get into people's arms. To date, we've had somewhere right around uh, about 10 to 12% of the population vaccinated with two doses, uh, or one if it's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which is a great, great start. But it still leaves a a number of people left unprotected at this very moment, including about 20 million Americans, 65 years of age and older. So we've got a lot of work to do. The problem is we just don't have enough vaccine and they're putting it out as quickly as they can. The other tale is one where we're very concerned that we're now beginning to see the emergence in the United States of this variant from originally identified in the United United Kingdom, BB17 or uh, the UK variant. And this particular one is a virus that um, fits two of the three categories we call a variant of concern more transmissible, causes more serious illness, or can evade the immune protection of the vaccines or natural disease. And to date, it's doing the first two. Uh, In Europe, this has been a real challenge. Uh, A number of countries in Europe are in various states of lockdown, including major lockdown activities for the last two months in England. Uh, We're now seeing particularly the Eastern uh, countries of Europe um, and even continuing in Portugal, Spain, and France, uh, real challenges. 
That virus is about 40 to 60% more transmissible than we've seen with the previous uh, SARS-CoV-2 viruses that caused COVID-19. Clearly, we're uh, accumulating more data every day showing it's a much more serious virus in terms of illness uh, and the kind of illnesses it causes. So now that we see a very rapid uh, development here in this country of, of the B117 variant in our various states, and right here in Minnesota, we have an outbreak going on right now with hmm. widespread transmission in kids uh, that's now spilling over into adults. So we worry that the next uh, four to, to uh, 12 weeks could be a real challenge with a surge that will surely far exceed what our vaccine will be able to protect us with. Well, Dr. Osterholm, thanks so much uh, for starting with some some great news that people have been really uh, eager to hear about how we're doing as a country with the vaccine rollout, uh, and then, of course, following it up with the reality. And it kind of juxtaposes with a number of states really uh, lightening up, right? Lightening up on mask requirements, uh, lightening up on the restrictions uh, on gathering just as we move into the uh, nice warm weather, at least on the East Coast, we hope, uh, where people are starting to plan more social activities, all of which seems uh, like a recipe for a surge in the United States. I'm wondering uh, what what you're uh, thinking is likely to happen over these next 90 days or so uh, with the reemergence of spikes. We've just gotten you know some good news over these last several weeks, but this sounds extremely worrisome. And I, I, I think the public on some level, we've all wanted to go with the good news for a bit about the rollout of the vaccine being successful, but this sounds like a cause for real concern about people continuing with the masks and the restrictions. What's the balance there, do you think, with the public? Well, let me just add some perspective first. Again, if you want to find out what is likely to happen here in the United States, just look at Europe. Today, Germany just put in place a new major lockdown just because of the challenges there. And I can go through country by country. And where this B117 variant has taken off, uh, the case numbers have surged substantially. Remember in the United States, even with everyone who has been previously infected and with even the amount of vaccine we've rolled out, we still have roughly 50 to 55% of the population unprotected. So uh, for all the pain, suffering, deaths, and cases we've had in the past year, we still have at least an equal amount, if not more, of people who are still vulnerable to this virus. So we have to take it very seriously. Uh, the second thing is, as you hit it right on the head with regard to, we're done with the virus. As a society, we're done. We want to move on. I understand that. The pain, the suffering, the economic disruption, uh, what it's done to our lives has been dramatic. But unfortunately, this virus is like gravity. You might not like it, but you can't ignore it. And so one of the challenges we have right now is everybody is opening up because of how the numbers have dropped. And this has been a great, great outcome uh, mm -hmm. since January of seeing this big drop in cases. But, you know, we're still at 60,000 uh, plus cases a day. Right. And any surge that would take off would take off on top of that. Remember last summer when we had a house on fire uh, period in uh, the summer months, we were at 70,000 cases a day. And now here we are almost at the same level. So the real worry we have is, is in loosening up, this is like the perfect storm. We are all but inviting this virus to take over and do what it can do. And so I think that I, I worry that we're going to see over the course of the next weeks, even despite vaccine. And by the way, the vaccine is effective against the strain. So it's not, uh, it's not somehow that we have to worry about the vaccine not protecting with this particular variant. But I also worry that um, 
people are gonna get within days to weeks of getting their dose of vaccine, but unfortunately die beforehand because they didn't just take that last few weeks of care to keep themselves from getting infected. You know, and I pulled the thread in your statement, this particular variant, and you know, we've had one year uh, since, uh, since the inception of COVID-2, and we have these two variants that have come up that seem to be somewhat highly transmissible, maybe virulent, the B117, the B1351. Educate us a little more. Uh, most of the world won't be vaccinated. I assume this is a place where more variants will arise. What, what are our worries? These are what's in front of us right now. Right. It only took a year. We've got a number of years before we can get the world vaccinated. What should we know about this mutations that go on with COVID-2 and what we might see in the future? Well, just as you mentioned, the variant 1351 is actually a variant that was first identified in South Africa. This one uh, looks to be really falling into largely that third bucket of variants of concern I mentioned, the ability to evade immune protection from either a vaccine or from natural infection. And it's not 100% evasion, meaning that there still is some protection, particularly against reducing severe disease hospitalizations and deaths. But there's also another variant, P1, which originated in Brazil which we're seeing right now wreak havoc in Brazil. Uh, it was one that has not only um, minimized substantially the protection from previous vaccination or previous infection, but also appears to have both increased uh, transmissibility and causing serious illness. Um, P1 is something we're very concerned about should it become circulating around the world. Right now we see P1 in the United States, but in a very limited way, clearly B117 is the variant that is spreading rapidly right now in some areas over 50% of the isolates are that. But I think a point that you raise is a very critical point. In fact, I covered it just last week in an article I published in Foreign Affairs on vaccine nationalism. And this idea that, yes, the world can't make enough vaccine for everybody overnight, but we have to readjust the prioritization that we've placed on getting vaccine to low and middle income countries. Uh, originally, COVAX, that organization under the auspices of the WHO, with a number of other group, philanthropic organizations, CEPI, uh, the Gavi group, all part of this, we're aiming at getting 20% of the low and middle income countries vaccinated in the next year, meaning getting that much vaccine out. Well, it turns out that these variants, the ones that are now a real challenge to us in terms of what they can do to, to vaccine, for example, are likely to come spinning out of uncontrolled transmission in the low and middle income countries. We don't have a couple of years to wait to get people vaccinated in those countries so that we don't see our own vaccines in the high income countries challenged by these variants that would spin out from natural infection. So this is a huge issue and there's no easy solution because we just don't have global capacity to make a vaccine for everyone right now. Um, and even if we did, would everyone take a vaccine? But the bottom line is, is that We've gone from just humanitarian aid, altruism in the low and middle income countries to a strategic investment. We don't want to see the vaccines threatened by these variants. And if we're going to do that, then we've got to really take care of low and middle income countries. Well, Dr. Osterholm, I really appreciate the urgency with which you speak about that. Uh, and again, you know, looking at some of the, the positives, we've now had the Pfizer and the Moderna. 
uh, out for a couple of months, uh, maybe three months now, uh, in, in pretty wide use. The, the safety data is wonderful uh, to see. I believe to this day we still have not seen a death from vaccine. Correct me if I'm wrong on no. that. We've seen very good efficacy in terms of appearing to give real protection against serious illness. Uh, and death, and and we've seen great increase in capacity to get the vaccines out, even while we're still working on making sure that we target um, all populations and address equity right here in the United States. And yet, uh, still we have the issue of vaccine hesitancy. And I'm I'm curious what you're uh, what you're seeing in a in a big picture view. Has the safety profile of the vaccines and the reports caught up with people? Uh, who have had issues with vaccine hesitancy. Are you seeing that kind of go down at the same time uh, that the availability of vaccines, again, at least here in the United States, is going up? Have we conquered that challenge? Well, again, let me just say the vaccine situation in the United States and in much of the uh, high-income countries of the world is good news. These are highly effective vaccines. They're working well, just as you pointed out. The safety profiles are remarkable. Really? Um, the challenge we have right now is getting enough vaccine quick enough to enough locations. And again, it all comes back to just global production. So even here in the United States, we may have enough vaccine for every adult by sometime in May to June. Uh, the challenge will be even then getting it in people's arms. And as you pointed out, vaccine hesitancy has been real. Now we have some information suggesting it may be uh, re being uh, reduced a bit, that more people are now willing to consider taking it. At the same time, when we look at the BIPOC community, uh, we look at uh, certain uh, people of certain political persuasions, they're much, much more reluctant to even consider the vaccine uh, for a variety of different reasons. We even see in healthcare settings up to a third of healthcare workers wanting more safety data before they'll be vaccinated. And so we have a lot more work to do. As I've uh, shared with you before, um, you know, when you name this Operation Warp Speed, it in part was run by the military. Yeah. Uh, you also had uh, a situation where some people believe there was a political thumb on the scale to get it approved, which wasn't the case, but some people believe that. And then on top of it, you have these new messenger RNA vaccines injecting genetic material into you, which then plays into all the fears and concerns about what that will do to my own health. Um, is this someone wanting to put a chip inside of me? Right. Uh, all disinformation, right. not true at all, but nonetheless, it's there. And so we have to do a much, much better job of trying to educate the public, share with them what we know, what we don't know about these vaccines. The fact that mRNA vaccines have been researched for many, many years. This is not just a first time use as such. Uh, the fact that um, uh, the immune response is very good and we're not seeing uh, challenges such as to pregnancy or that this will cause someone to become fertile which or infertile, which has been a challenge on the internet. So we have a lot of work to do, but we're, I think at this point, moving forward. Again, I just come back to the fact we got to get as many people vaccinated in the high income countries, but we cannot forget for a moment about low and middle income country individuals. Yeah. We're speaking today with Dr. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Osterholm recently served on the team advising President Biden on COVID-19. No, I want to continue the conversation about equity issues and your vaccine nationalism. You know, as more and more people get vaccinated and the desire to open up businesses and return to normal grows, and I think we're bound to encounter 
many ideas about how to open things up safely, including giving special preferences perhaps to people who've been vaccinated. And these ideas are, are bound to be well-meaning, but uh, they will perhaps have detrimental consequences. And the idea of putting rules into place to minimize risk is, is not new. In the not-so-distant past, neighborhoods that were deemed to have higher financial risk were redlined, uh, and many were communities of color. Should we be worried uh, that we might be running into similar issues if we are redlining people who have not been vaccinated and really in a good attempt to try to open the economy past neighborhoods, perhaps with countries as well? Well, first of all, uh, it's very important that we don't discriminate against people for any reason as it relates to COVID-19. Um, but it's also fair to look at risk. And, you know, we tell people now to avoid certain environmental areas, you know, uh, with regard to risk. Where is the virus more likely to be present? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not as if we don't deal with risk. I think the point we're trying to raise right now is just what is it going to take to protect you? If you are vaccinated, frankly, you're on a totally different planet with regard to protection versus almost any other thing except total distancing from someone who then might infect you. So it's not inappropriate to say, if you've been vaccinated, these are the things you can do now and feel much more uh, uh, secure in what you're doing and the safety of the vaccine is there to protect you. For example, as the CDC said, if your grandparents, you wanna go visit your grandchildren who you've not seen for a year, uh, and they're, although they're not vaccinated, if they're not at high risk for getting infected, then go do it, go see them, hug your grandkids. Mm -hmm. So I think the point we're trying to raise here is, is that what kind of incentives can we provide to people who say, well, why did I get vaccinated if I have to continue to you know, lead my life the way I have for the last year, when in fact the data do support that you're protected? I agree with you 100%. We don't want to redline any area or any individual. But at the same time, if you know that certain individuals are going to be at higher risk, and you're trying to avoid that risk, then I think that is fair to at least describe uh, what that risk might be. So if you have a large number of people who are not vaccinated, who are going into bars, uh, restaurants, uh, no masks, uh, you know what, that's an environment, even if you're vaccinated, remember they're not 100% effective, uh, you want to likely avoid. So the key thing I think is going to be finding that, uh, you might all call it a sweet spot, mm -hmm. where people can feel good about being vaccinated. They can feel good about it being identified as they're now protected. And at the same time, not trying to discriminate against someone else, but I don't want to be put at risk because of what someone else does. Sure. Right. Dr. Osterholm, I, I think I'm still stuck back in my mind uh, thinking about the global challenges. And you talked about it really being a problem of worldwide production, but we've, uh, Mark and I have had the opportunity to be very engaged in uh, setting up mass vaccine clinics and targeted population uh, vaccine clinics. And even on the end of delivering the vaccine, it's a pretty complicated resource intensive process as currently exists, right? Multiple dose vials and drawing them yeah, up and yeah. keeping the, the chain of uh, refrigeration and so forth. Do we have any hope on the horizon for innovations? Uh, we've heard about things such as perhaps being able to use a patch that has a kind of pinprick administration of the vaccine, maybe being freed up uh, with two only single dose vaccines as we go forward. Are you hopeful of any innovation in those areas that will really uh, make it much more possible to get that global distribution of vaccine? What are you seeing on the delivery end that will yeah. help the global community? 
Well, I think that's a critical, critical question. Uh, some months ago, I did a, a podcast entitled The Last Mile, The Last Inch. The last mile was before the distribution of the vaccine started, and I laid out all the challenges that eventually we encountered with just trying to get vaccine into the right communities. Didn't speak to whether they, got, whether they took the vaccine or not. That was the last inch. And so I think everything you just said is right on the mark. We have to look at every possible barrier that might be there in terms of getting people vaccinated and what can we do to deal with that barrier whether it is the kind of product that we use, mm -hmm. the requirements we have for how it has to be refrigerated, how many doses, uh, what are the potential side effects. I can just go down the laundry list. Those are all real. I think our first challenge is getting more of what we have. Mm -hmm. We've got to get that and get that done. And that's going to be a big impact issue. The second thing is we have to look at the potential for new innovative vaccines that may be what we call second or third generation vaccines that allow us to deal with these variants much more effectively, rather than trying to reconfigure you know, an mRNA vaccine to now we accommodate this mutation versus that mutation, we can be chasing our tail uh, as these new mutations continue to occur. There are vaccines that, for example, may rely more heavily on T cell responses mm -hmm. that could be nonspecific and actually protect against any one of several different mutations that might occur in the virus. The third priority is just what you said is for uh, ease of, of production and distribution, how do we do that so that we can make the vaccines for the world that they will use? And I think that is a high priority. Just know we're not going to be done with this virus okay. for a long, 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 long yeah. time to come. So every investment we make right now in, in short-term, intermediate, and long-term vaccine development issues is going to have payback. And I think that's what's really important right now. So I think your points are a good one. What can we do to make these even more friendly in terms of administration and uh, consumer acceptance? I noticed today that Germany, France, Italy suspended the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine for some time so they could take a look at it. Margaret was talking earlier about the, we know about the efficacy, at least during the clinical trials, but those trials have continued for three months past. Is there a lot of transparency on what's happening there? Or is there someone keeping it so sort of separate, AstraZeneca, and then just sort of generally yeah. how the public keeps informed on these? Well, I think at this point, we all have a number of questions about the AstraZeneca vaccine. And uh, since uh, more information is not in the domain of the public, uh, I think that we just have to wait until it uh, is available. Uh, you know, we want every vaccine dose we can possibly get to take this on globally. And so I would sure hope the AstraZeneca vaccine will remain in the mix and the data will ultimately show that it is safe and effective. Uh, but I think until we see those data, you know, we have to rely on the government bodies that are looking at what data they have and what decisions they're making. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, CDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. You can learn more about his vitally important work by going to cdrap.umn.edu or follow him on Twitter at MT Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm, we thank you again for your career-long commitment to global health, uh, for being so willing to share your expertise and wisdom and guidance during this pandemic, and for joining us again today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you.
Conversations on Healthcare. We want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President Joe Biden has made some misleading claims while boasting about his administration's progress in getting Americans vaccinated against COVID-19. In remarks he made in February at a Pfizer manufacturing site, Biden claimed that the Trump administration had, quote, failed to order enough vaccines. The Trump administration had contracts in place for plenty of vaccines for all Americans, provided other vaccines gained authorization. The president also claimed there was, quote, no real plan to vaccinate most of the country, end quote, when he took office. There was indeed a plan to acquire and distribute vaccines. The Biden administration has done more on increasing vaccination sites and vaccinators. As of December 31st, 2020, the Trump administration had contracted to buy at least 800 million COVID-19 vaccine doses with delivery by July 31st. Those doses included vaccines from four companies who had not yet received FDA authorization. There were at least 1 billion doses under contract as of January 2021. The government could acquire additional doses by exercising options to do so under the agreements with vaccine companies. So the Trump administration had clearly ordered enough vaccine doses for the U.S. population. However, the issue is that only the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines had been authorized when Biden made his remarks on February 19th. About a week later, the FDA authorized the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. In December, Pfizer and Moderna had agreed to provide 400 million doses by the end of July for the two-dose vaccines. The Biden administration announced in February that the two companies would provide yet another 200 million doses by the end of July for a total of 600 million doses. As for Biden's claim that there was no real plan to vaccinate most of the country, his administration has built upon vaccination plans made by the previous administration. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, told CNN on February 16th that there had been a vaccine distribution plan, but a, quote, rather vague plan on getting the vaccine doses into people's arms. The Biden administration has taken steps to increase the number of people who can administer the vaccines and where the shots can be given. These steps have also come as vaccine availability has increased. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. If music soothes the savage beast, the question they want to answer at the Sync Project is, how exactly? There are lots of anecdotal studies supporting music's ability to trigger memory or boost endurance or focus, but virtually nothing is known about how music truly impacts our physiological and neurological state. 
This is the question that intrigued scientist Keiki Kuranam, a systems biology PhD from Harvard, who wondered, how could music be scientifically harnessed as a powerful precision medicine tool? They formed the SYNC project with a cross-section of neuroscientists, biologists, audio engineers, even some rock stars like Peter Gabriel, and started by using artificial intelligence systems to analyze existing playlists that purport to promote relaxation, induce sleep, enhance focus, or athletic performance. And once we have this set of songs that our machine learning algorithms predict to be effective for a specific activity, we can then run studies using these devices like your you know, heart rate monitors, your smartwatches, your activity trackers, and actually look at how effective indeed is that song for that purpose. Karanam and her colleagues note that most of us self-medicate with music already. So why not harness this ubiquitous tool that's available to all of us and develop strategies and systems that might replace pharmacological interventions with musical ones? The Sync Project is seeking a million volunteers to offer their music suggestions, as well as any information they can share on why these songs seem to work for them. So we're literally walking around with, you know, 14 million songs in our pocket every single day. So we saw a great opportunity on really being able to understand how music was affecting us to measure how different types of music affect both our psychological health as well as our physiology. Karanam and her team see vast potential for reducing reliance on drugs by crafting personalized music interventions in the management of a variety of complex conditions, such as pain management, PTSD, even Parkinson's disease. In Parkinson's disease, patients have trouble coordinating movement. So by playing them the right kind of music, it can be an external auditory support they have that's going to help them walk more smoothly. The SYNC project, combining computer technology and neuroscience, physiology and musicology to harness the healing powers inherent in music to help manage a variety of human ills. Now that is a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.